0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are actually now tuned into our OITE review or orthopedic in-training exam review featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. We have gotten great feedback thus far, so we thank you all so much for listening now Our podcast companion notes to this podcast will be coming out soon. If you want to get early bird access, or maybe we may put it out there for a little bit cheaper than when we will for the general public, please go and put your email address and sign up in the information box in the description of this podcast. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into some more upper extremity Sports. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole.
1: Hello everybody, welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed Ortho podcast. You are tuned into our OITE review and we're continuing on with sports. But you know, first we must give a, a big round of congratulations uh, to Dr. Woolwine here for finishing his uh his board, uh, his board test. So uh congratulations again, Spencer. I know we we're just talking about it not too long ago, but on air official, congratulations.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's uh it's a, it's a test that you definitely need to uh, focus on and, uh, and prepare for. And so hopefully this uh, series here is going to provide uh, a few uh, kind of key insights into not only the information that's on the test, but I'll try and throw in some uh, pearls on just like test taking strategy and uh, all of that as we move forward in sports and all of the rest of the uh, subspecialties here.
1: Yeah, it should be good. Looking forward to these, uh, these conversations, I'm not looking forward to the boards in a couple of years, but, uh, at least for now, it's just baby steps, baby steps. Yep. Exactly. Uh, so just starting off, I guess we'll just kind of continue on with some, uh, some of the sportsy topics, shoulder, elbow stuff. And, um, uh, one, one thing that I've, I've seen a lot of is a uh, paralabel cyst. So, uh, what is the treatment of a paralabel cyst with symptoms of suprascapular nerve compression?
2: Uh, yeah, so uh, the treatment. So when you see these paralabral cysts, they're always going to be like in a either some sort of overhead throwing athlete or like a volleyball player or a tennis player. And uh, when you have these paralabral cysts, you're going to see this uh, suprascapular nerve compression, most commonly in that spinoglenoid glenoid notch. And it'll most likely be from some sort of like slap tear uh, with extravasation of the uh, joint fluid into that area and causing cysts. So uh, you're going to do a, kind of a diagnostic arthroscopy uh, and uh, cyst decompression through the labral tear. And then uh, most commonly, like these are in young athletes. So you're going to also do a uh, labral uh, repair slash reconstruction uh, to, to help these, these athletes kind of get back to uh, their activities. The good part about this is that the, uh, once you decompress it, the, uh, muscle tends to recover quite well. Um, so uh, that's one kind of good thing you can pass along to these athletes. It's, it's going to take a little bit of time and rehab to get their kind of shoulder mechanics back in line, but, uh, their muscles should recover and they should uh, end up going back to their previous level of play. Um, And then there's this uh, really common kind of diagnosis we see in sports clinic and a general ortho practice. uh, It's called subacromial impingement. And what is the etiology of uh, subacromial impingement syndrome?
1: Yeah, so on this, you know, there's kind of multiple etiologies, and I know it's a little controversial uh, depending on who you talk to, but you know, there's kind of the intrinsic versus the extrinsic, and it's like it's likely a combination of both. But the en- extrinsic um, etiology of the subacromial impingement syndrome is when you have the anterior lateral edge of the cromian, uh of the acromion, and, uh, and the CA ligament, the uh, cracochromial ligament, impinges on on um, on kind of the rotator cuff muscles, and then. And then on, for the intrinsic, this is when you kind of have a degeneration or tendinopathy of the supraspinatus muscle uh, with subacromial space narrowing. And then you have abutment of the rotator cuff against the acromion. So, you know, the extrinsic is you're, you're thinking of the, uh, the anterior uh, lateral edge of the acromion uh, and everything in versus the intrinsic. Uh, you have abutment of the rotator cuff against the acromion uh, with tendinopathy of the spinatus, And I think, you know, when you go and you're doing like a subacromial decompression, at least some of our attendees will make an emphasis on making sure that if you're doing a decompression, you decompress that anterior lateral edge and you just don't compress like the middle part of the acromion and leave the impinging parts uh, normal. So they always emphasize making sure you get that anterior lateral edge of the acromion. But again, it's likely a combination of both extrinsic and intrinsic factors. Um, and, and since we're speaking about kind of this shoulder impingement syndrome. How do we even know if a patient uh, comes to the office with it? Like what are some of the symptoms and physical exam findings of shoulder impingement syndrome?
2: Uh, unfortunately, it's not extremely uh, like a, like a pinpoint issue for these patients. A lot of them will just have kind of vague shoulder pain. It can be worse at night and uh, also with overhead activity. Cause as you think about it as that, humeral head is articulating with the glenoid and you start to bring your arm up overhead, it will come in closer proximity and impinge on that uh, lateral, like anterolateral border of the acromion. Um, They can have a positive uh, near and Hawkins because those are the uh, kind of impingement tests of the shoulder that we went over in one of the previous uh, episodes. So if you don't quite remember what those are uh, go back an episode or two and we'll uh, kind of discuss what the difference between a near test and a Hawkins test is and then uh, I think one of the greatest ones at least what I saw in my very limited uh, time in sports uh, in my residency was uh, doing a lidocaine test so doing a subacromial impingement uh, letting the patient sit there for five, 10 minutes and then Uh, having them conduct kind of the same tests, like an overhead test and a near and a Hawkins. And uh, if they got better, then you know that just a local injection and kind of numbing of that area improves their symptoms, then they likely do have subacromial impingement. And oftentimes their strength is normal, but it can be painful, but they do have excellent strength because this isn't really a a musculotendinous issue it's a space issue so their their muscles are uh, tend to be okay and uh, one thing that uh, every resident will see in their sports rotation from a shoulder uh, and elbow specialist is they'll they'll ask what what type of acromion uh, do you see here on this (laughs) x-ray and so what what are the different types of acromion morphology
1: yeah. So when you're looking at this and the easy way to see it is if you're looking at a scapular Y uh, and that kind of gives you a good um, a good look at the type of the acromion it is. And it's type 1, 2, and 3. And it's to me, it's relatively simple. It's either flat, curved, or it's a hooked acromion. And if you just kind of think about it in your head, if your acromion is hooked, uh, you'll likely uh, impinge a little bit sooner than if it's flat. Like, for example, if you're abducting or lifting your head overhead, try and lift your arm overhead and that acromion is hooked and and jamming into the rotator cuff every time you do that. That could uh, lead you uh, to more, um, you know, more commonly have rotator cuff tears. So things to note is that these type two and type three, which the type two is curved and the type three is hooked, these types of acromions are going to be more common with the rotator cuff tears. Again, you just think about in your head, you know, if the acromion is curved or hooked, it'll likely impinge or kind of pinch that rotator cuff muscle uh, when you're um, abducting your arm or doing overhead activities. So what is the initial treatment for shoulder impingement syndrome?
2: Uh, Just like everything else in orthopedics is a a lot of PT uh, activity modification and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Uh, it's also common for these patients to get an injection, uh, a subacromial injection, uh, while in clinic, and um, it's really not a. Uh, it's it's just something you have to kind of walk the patients through and tell them it's going to take a little bit of time to get through this, but most, uh, a vast majority of patients will get better with dedicated PT and activity modification. But for those few that fail several rounds of physical therapy and they're still having the same or worsening symptoms uh, six months after uh, initial presentation. What does what the treatment at that point?
1: Yeah, so at that point, you know, they failed all their non-operative uh, or these conservative measures, and you're looking at taking back for children's pendulum syndrome. This would be one where you likely do something like a subacromial decompression or a chromioplasty where you kind of clear up or try to increase that space. Um, underneath the acromion and or maybe even resect some of that that hook uh, of the bone that way you have a little bit more space between the undersurface of your acromion and your rotator cuff muscle that way it is likely it is less likely to impinge and therefore decrease um, some of those symptoms and you know since we're talking about subacromial decompressions and acromioplasties we know that these procedures shouldn't be done on everybody so uh, in what patients would you not want to do like a subacromial decompression or acromioplasty on?
2: Uh, these, so uh, the uh, literature out there um, is kind of uh, pretty set in stone for a few things. I know that with uh, like some, some surgeons will say that there's no improvement with a subacromial decompression on the standard, uh, like rotator cuff tear or, uh, diagnostic shoulder arthroscopy that, uh, subacromial decompression hasn't shown, uh, to benefit these patients. But, uh, for some like overhead athletes or patients with massive irreparable rotator cuff tears, um, you really wanna just perform a bursectomy and limit how much acromion you're taking off, especially in the the bigger athletes. Because if you uh, take too much of the acromion, uh, then you do run the risk of an acromial uh, fracture because of the pull from the deltoid. Um, and also, uh, to preserve the, chromial, uh, the clavicular or chromial arch, uh, you wanna prevent that uh, anterior superior escape and humeral migration. So uh, for these patients with these with the big uh, rotator cuff tears, uh, you wanna keep the humeral head contained as much as possible. And so uh, doing a subacromial decompression is not ideal in them. Um, and then uh, what percentage of asymptomatic full thickness rotator cuff tears will become symptomatic or enlarge uh, in about three years?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the simple answer is it's going to be 50 percent. So I, I think it is an important thing to counsel patients on, you know, when they're diagnosed with a rotator cuff tear, even know, it's especially a full thickness one. If it's asymptomatic, you have to let them know that. You now we notice that about you know, one or two patients in three years, these will become symptomatic or they will enlarge. And you know, studies uh, that you can read up on more to, uh, to learn a little bit more about this, uh, both of these studies published in JBJS, the first one in 2010 and the second one in 2015. Uh, and the first one is named Symptomatic Progression of Asymptomatic Rotator Cuff Tears, a Prospective Study of Clinical and Sonographic Variables. And the next one is uh, is uh, again published in 2015 out of JBJS, and this is called a prospective evaluation of survivorship of asymptomatic degenerative rotator cuff tears by Dr. Keener K-E-N-E-R. So just know again, within three years, uh, anybody that has a full thickness rotator cuff tear um, and it's asymptomatic within three years, it may become symptomatic or enlarge. Now, since we've kind of transitioning and and moving on to a little bit more of the rotator cuff, um, just kind of these simple questions, but, you know, easy points on on exams when they do arrive or show up is is what is the function of the supraspinatus muscle?
2: The supraspinatus uh, is really responsible for stabilizing the humeral head during early uh, shoulder elevation and abduction it's uh, kind of it's taught in a lot of med schools that it's kind of responsible for bringing the shoulder from zero to about 20 degrees, 30 degrees of abduction and then the deltoid will take over at that point. you just have to create a little bit of a lever for the deltoid to take over so, Um, it's a, it's key in elevation and abduction of the shoulder. And then, uh, what's the function of the infraspinatus?
1: Yeah. So the infraspinatus attaches just a little bit more posteriorly than the supraspinatus. And this is going to be a main external rotator of the humerus. Um, that's it, you know, (laughs) it's going to externally rotate the humerus, especially with your arm at the side, Mm. with your arm. And we may talk about this in a a bit. I don't remember if we put a question on it, but with your arm and AB duction, your external rotator is going to be a little bit more of your teres minor. Um, but again, your infraspinatus is going to externally rotate the humerus. Now we spoke about it a little bit briefly, and I know I probably mentioned this a couple of times and we'll probably mention this a couple of times in the next couple of minutes here, or next 20, 30, however long this takes, uh, of the suprascapular nerve. We talked about it with the paralabel cyst, but what are some areas of possible compression of the suprascapular nerve?
2: The first part will be the suprascapular notch. So as that suprascapular nerve is coming off of the brachial plexus uh, and going under the ligament at the suprascapular notch, uh, it can impinge there and it uh, affects both the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus. Also, this area of impingement of the nerve is commonly associated with pain because there are uh, sensory fibers in this portion of the nerve at, uh, at this area. Uh, but as the nerve uh, innervates supraspinatus and passes along the spinal glenoid notch, which is the second area of suprascapular nerve uh, compression, it just affects the infraspinatus. And at that point the pain fibers or the sensory fibers have left the nerve. And so uh, suprascapular nerve compression at the spinal glenoid notch is commonly associated with weakness only and not associated with pain. Um, One of the pearls I got from our shoulder and elbow uh, specialist back in Fresno and uh, then moving on to the uh, subscapularis. What's the function of the subscap?
1: Yeah, so the subscaps can be, you know, the anterior structure is going to come in, uh, insert on in the lesser tuberosity. It's going to help internally rotate the humerus, but it's not the only internal rotator of the humerus. You also have the pic major, the uh, teres major, the anterior deltoids, and the lats that help internally rotate the uh, the humerus. But just know that the subscap is an internal rotator of the humerus. Now, moving a little bit forward to some of the st- symptoms that the patients will complain about um so patients that have a rotator cuff tear uh, what do they typically complain of when they when they see in clinic like oh doc oh my shoulder and you know and and they and they have a whole list of things that may bother them what are some of those things
2: uh the i think the main thing is really that pain a lot of these rotator cuff tears are painful even if they still have relatively good range of motion associated with it, but it's that lateral shoulder pain. And uh, a lot of the patients that I saw, they really talked about how the pain started in the shoulder, but it tended to kind of radiate down to where the deltoid insertion is. And I don't really know why the uh, that was one of like the main complaints, but that was just something where they all said that it kind of, it felt like it was like a flowing pain down their lateral shoulder. They'll also have night pain, shoulder weakness. And then uh, obviously there will be differences in active range of motion and passive range of motion. So their passive range of motion should relatively be normal or intact, whereas their active range of motion, either secondary to pain or just a, a rotator cuff tear and the muscle's inability to activate the, uh, the shoulder Um, they'll have differences or they'll have less active range of motion compared to their passive range of motion. And uh, I had a few attendings uh, kind of talk about this and it took a little bit of reading for me to kind of fully understand, but they'll say like, uh, hey, do you think this patient has uh, paralysis of the shoulder or just like a pseudoparesis? So what is that pseudoparesis?
0: yeah
1: and these are <laughs> these are things i'm still somewhat uh confused on and was and kind of looking this up a little bit and so far from what i have been able to figure out and read is pseudoparesis is when you have a massive rotator cuff tear um and and they're unable to unable to forwardly elevate their arm um greater than 90 degrees so it's kind of stops under under 90 degrees but and then you know when i look that up and i look up pseudoparesis. And then when I look up pseudoparalysis, they, they, so, I mean, to me, they have somewhat similar um, definitions. Like, you know, I'm looking at an article now and it's saying that pseudoparalysis um, was described as the inability to elevate the arm over 90 degrees in the setting of a rotator cuff tear. And so do, do you, do you have like a good way to remember pseudoparesis versus pseudoparalysis? I know there's a definition. I just cannot find it.
2: <laughs> um, So I, I, I will have to, potentially revisit it but i think that a uh pseudo paralysis is when there's a uh just an inability to uh abduct the shoulder uh at all and it's really because of these the rotator cuff tears but then you have it's it's similar but the pseudo paresis i've heard about really more with uh in terms of like doing a latissimus transfer is the pseudoparesis is associated with uh external rotation they're just not able to activate that external rotation um even though they may have an intact uh rotator cuff and so um you're you're going to do a latissimus transfer for the pseudoparesis uh of that external rotation but again uh, i think that's something we may have to kind of revisit here uh because i'm not yeah. uh, an expert in sports stuff at all since i stayed away from it uh, <laughs> as much as possible during residency. yeah
1: yeah yeah i had to come back to that at some point i was uh i, I think i Finally found an article, but it is isn't completely in Spanish, so it's gonna take a while for me to uh, to read this and discern the difference between the two. But, anyways, it's, I guess it's moving on. Then, uh, what are some things when you're actually just looking at an X ray that you can assess in patients that have a rotator cuff tear? You know, this is kind of just critically uh, examining X rays and trying to figure out what is what. You know, trying to use whatever clues that you can. But, so, what are some clues that that may clue you in towards a rotator cuff tear?
2: So you, on like a an AP uh, shoulder X ray, you're going to look at that uh, acromial humeral interval, uh, and it should there should be a, a good amount of space between the inferior process of uh, the acromion or the inferior structure of the acromion and the superior portion of the humeral head. Uh, around eight to ten millimeters is normal. Um, but uh, people will common, commonly say like, oh, it's a high riding humerus, meaning that that rotator cuff is no longer providing that superior buttress to the humeral head. So if that's gone, the humeral head will just uh, rise up uh, and start abutting that uh, acromion. And uh, you'll have uh, glenohumeral arthritis and also uh joint arthritis. And then for late stage, uh, massive rotator cuff tears on uh, x-ray, you'll commonly hear people talking about a acetabularization of the shoulder, meaning that the humeral head and the acromion have been articulating directly for so long that it's actually created kind of a, a smooth undersurface of the acromion that looks more like a, a acetabulum rather than uh, a humeral head
1: yeah you'll see that too the, the they make it very um uh noticeable on, on those x-rays especially when they're trying to show you that like rotator cuff tear arthropathy
2: yeah and then uh some more i guess uh radiographic stuff uh there's a, a kind of a measurement or an angle called the critical shoulder angle uh, what is this, and what is it kind of used for clinically?
1: Yeah, I remember the first time I was hearing this, I was in our, I was in our chairman's um, uh, uh, shoulder clinic. as like an intern or so. I know I had an extra day. I was like, oh, let's just go check out some clinic, and uh, he threw an X-ray up there and was like, all right, what do you see? And I was like, oh, you know, you know, bones and stuff. You know, you're describing things as an intern the best you can. He's like, hey, what, what about the critical shoulder angle? I was like, in my head. I was like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. And um and so this is that for anybody that's an intern or somebody maybe you'll sound you sound uh like you know a little know what you're talking about but so this critical shoulder angle it's gonna measure the angle um kind of between the acromial overhang and the glenoid inclination so you have one line going um going down the you know superior inferior part of the the glenoid and then you have another line going right over the uh, over the. Overhang of the acromion, you look at the at the angle for those two lines where they intersect that, and that's the critical shoulder angle. So um, anything greater than 35 to 38 degrees may be associated with the recurrent rotator cuff tears um, postoperatively. It's, it kind of just lets you know that you have an uh, increased. Um, increased chance of having you know rotated cuff tears if you just think about how much acromial overhang you have and we were talking a little bit about earlier uh, about you know kind of impingement and this may be one of those extrinsic causes where you abduct your shoulder and if you have a a lot more uh, overhang it may be a shorter distance before you get uh, kind of that impingement on the rotator cuff. So these critical shoulder angles that are greater than 35, 38 degrees may be associated with recurrent rotator cuff tears post-op. On the contrary, if you have a critical shoulder angle less than 30 degrees, may be associated with glenohumeral arthritis due to the uh, increased glenohumeral forces. And uh, there's a good review article that you can uh, look at and read to learn a little bit more about this that uh, was published in JBJS Reviews in 2018. And it is entitled, Relationship Between the Critical Shoulder Angle and Shoulder Disease. Um, so that is something that you can read up to find a little bit more about that. Um, now, what are some of the different classification systems for rotator cuff tears? We know they kind of, they have kind of evolved and changed a little bit with time. And there are a lot of different um, systems to them, to classify them on. But what are some of the different classification systems for rotator cuff tears?
2: uh the i mean there's one uh de and coalfield from 84 and they were talking about uh the anterior posterior dimensions where a small tear was less than one centimeter medium was one to three centimeters a large was three to five centimeters and then massive is greater than five centimeter uh tear uh dr pat in uh 90 uh 1990 um described the system uh, talking about the medial to lateral dimensions and the thickness of the tear. So um, it's really looking at kind of the footprint of the rotator cuff and uh, seeing how how thick that tear is in a medial to lateral uh, dimension. And then Burkhart in 2010, uh, viewed from a lateral portal, uh, classified tears really based on their shape. And so there were crescent type tears, there were U type tears, L type, and then uh, massive tears. And um, let's see here, Uh, I was pulling up, but I guess this was more uh, of rotator cuff arthropathy and not rotator cuff tears. So uh, we won't go into those classifications, but um, when you have a rotator cuff and you're looking at an MRI of a shoulder, you'll hear about the uh, Goutelier classification and what is that classification kind of describe and what's it used for?
1: Yeah. So this is, you know, when you're, when you're looking at rotator cuffs and you're looking at uh, the integrity of the muscle itself and, and the gutelier classification system has to do with the amount of fatty infiltration for the muscle. And one of our attending says that with this, you know, this, Shows you uh, that you have fat interspersed between a muscle, and it kind of makes the muscle a little bit more stiff and and less functional. Um, So, you know, it's kind of graded from grade zero to grade four. And grade zero is you have no fatty infiltration. Grade one is you have some fatty streaks. Grade two, you uh, have some fatty infiltration, but you still have more muscle than fat. Grade three is equal fat and muscle, and grade four is more fat than muscle. So, I mean, if you think of grade three, they're both equal, and grade four, it's more fat than muscle. Then you should be able to kind of determine some of the other ones. And um, fatty infiltration is just uh, one of those uh, things that you kind of need to know about that may lead you to that factors in um, as far as what your operative plan may be. You know, if you have a, a muscle, you have a lot of, of fat has. Uh, has infiltrated the muscle, which has made the, the muscle uh, very stiff and less likely to, you know, to contract. And um, it, it may, it, you know, kind of your chances of, you know, having a functioning rotator cuff may be, may be a, little, a little bit less versus, you know, you may have on grade one fatty infiltration. We just have a little bit of some fatty streaks, but that muscle is, is still working, can still contract and, and, um, and isn't as stiff. And another thing, since so we're still on the rotator cusp, what is the tangent sign? This is, you know, something that we can see on, um, see on MRIs, but what is this tangent sign? And what is it, what is like the, why do we even care about it?
2: Yeah, the tangent sign, it correlates with muscle atrophy and uh, fatty infiltration. And it's really the supraspinatus, uh, when the supraspinatus muscle belly does not cross a line drawn from the superior border of the coracoid to the superior border of the scapular spine. So you're checking the sagittal view of the MRI. And um, uh, for those listening, as you're listening to this, just open up like a, your web browser. If you don't know what the tangent sign is, and they'll show you, you're looking at the Y of the scapula and the supraspinatus muscle belly should kind of fill that supraspinatus fossa. But as the uh, tear occurs and there's less uh, innervation of the muscle and less activation of it because it's torn off of its insertion uh, on the humeral head, that muscle will start to uh, denervate and not be as active and will shrink. And once it shrinks below that line drawn from the superior portion of the coracoid to the superior portion of the scapular spine, uh, there's enough fatty infiltration in the muscle that it likely is going to be uh, an irreparable tear. Or if you do try to repair it, it has a higher chance of failure because of the degree of fatty infiltration.
0: Thank you all for listening to yet another, another episode of the nailed it ortho podcast if you have not hit the subscribe button go and do that if you have not left us a little review it literally takes five seconds to just click the stars we hope you click five um and we hope you rate us five stars if not before you click that feel free to email us and let us know what you like and what you don't like and then we can switch some things up and then you can come and leave that five star review for us until next time we will uh, see you next week